So if I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, and this is one of those crazy evenings where we do something called Ask Me Anything. Ask Me Anything kind of uh, where it basically you know, came out of was the fact that we have a conviction here at CTK that, that Christianity is actually supposed to be a conversation, not just, uh, I'm not supposed to preach at you, we're actually supposed to talk back and forth, because we call this a family, which means families are supposed to talk, we can have a conversation, we can have differing opinions, as long as we come back to the unity of the faith in the center of it, because for us, if you want to know what team we're on, we're all about this book, and we're all about Jesus, that's the bottom line for us, that's where it all comes from, and that's where it all goes to, and so we want to come back into those kinds of moments, and, and so what we decided, like, about three or four times a year we don't do the normal preach thing where I show up here with seven points and poems and yell at you for 30 minutes um, instead we just enter into a conversation and a dialogue and what we found out was people kind of enjoyed doing something a little different than we normally do I think you guys enjoy it it scares me to death um, because here's what I need you to know. I don't know what's coming on the screen. I have no idea. I don't know what the questions are ahead of time. I show up with my Bible. I pray a lot. I pace back and forth. And then we just go for it. Um, and so before we get started, first of all, let's put the number up on there so you know exactly where you can text your question right now. That number is 360. And I never get this right. Did I, did I get the... No. There. There it is right there. Okay. Everything's backwards and upside down. 360-399-6360. So you can text a live question to that. What that means is it goes to Randy and Angel in the booth. They'll take a look at the question. They'll walk through it. And we're going to get through as many as we possibly can during the time that we have. Now, before we dive in, I want to tell you something. I'm a person, which means if you cut me, I'll bleed. That's just how it works. So we want to be nice and we want to be respectful for each other. But at the same time, if you've got, you got a question, throw it at me. Let's see what happens. I also want you to know this. I'm a pastor. I am not a psychologist. I'm not a politician. Some of you are like, thank you, Jesus, for that. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a theorist. I'm not a psychologist. There's a lot of things that I'm not. So I'm going to answer these questions as best I can from the perspective of being a pastor who loves Jesus, who has had the privilege and honor of being a part of this family for more than two decades. And we're just going to dive into this with everything we got. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. I'm not praying for you today. I'm praying for me. Okay, all right? Let's just lay that right off from the beginning. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to have a conversation with our spiritual family. Lord, I pray that we would be bold in asking questions. God, I thank you that we're not only in this room right now, but we're online. So Lord, I, I thank you for every person who's in their living room watching, wherever they happen to be in the world. I pray that this moment uh, together would actually bring us closer together. So God, walk with us. Give us wisdom. Help us to understand that there are things uh, that need to be said. But Lord, we want to be prompted by your Holy Spirit tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so a couple more things before we jump to the first question. If we don't get to your question, it doesn't mean your question's not important. And that's why we do things around here like community and small groups and Rooted is because we believe your question should be answered. And if I don't get to it, that doesn't mean your, your question shouldn't be answered. It just means you're going to have to go somewhere else in order for it to be answered. Normally, we can get to seven to eight per service. Uh, we do them different at every single service. So if you want some listening material for the rest of the week, just go ahead and listen to the other services. They'll be online as well. I also want you to know my heart in doing these things. Uh, as I'm pe uh, praying backstage, I'm just saying, God, let me do no harm. Because it, it, it does not escape me that the Bible says that the tongue is a restless evil full of poison. 
it can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. So I'm like, God, give me your mind, give me your heart, give me your eyes, give me your ears, and let's have a conversation together as best we can. All right? Here we go. All right. First question. Let's pop it up. Actually, it's going to go back there for me, and you guys can see it on the sides. All right. I know you say we can ask you anything, but are there certain types of questions you choose not to answer in this format? Oh, a nice, easy, light thing to just wrap your brain around. Well, so I would answer this. Um, yes, you can ask anything. And I've been asked, I've been asked all kinds of stuff. Like, where do you get your haircut? How much did your shoes cost? I mean, I've been asked all kinds of things. I get asked theology questions, church questions. I've been asked political questions. I've been asked personal opinion questions. Those of you that have been here for years, you know. Um, there isn't a question that we will necessarily duck. But going back to what I just said, we also want to be highly responsible. So there are times when we'll get question in that we know is very personal to an individual that may not affect the large majority of people that are listening and watching. And so in that moment, what we try to do is we actually try to reach out pastorally to that person. Let me tell you a really cool story from an Ask Me Anything that happened quite a while ago. We actually got a question in from a young lady who was struggling with life and death decisions. She was thinking about taking her own life. And the question was so personal and it was so intimate to her situation, we didn't feel it would be responsible to put her question up on a whole bunch of screens and broadcast it all over the place. So what happened was one of our pastors who was backstage working through questions texted her directly and said, if you're here, we love you. All I will stand in the center of the comments and wait for you. And you know what's really neat? She did. She reached out. So we try to be responsible. We also try to be true to the essence of the story. We also know that some of the questions are so highly personal that it can be very difficult and don't really apply to a larger group of people. So it's like 90% on, but 10%. We just want to make sure that we're actually handling those questions really, really well because you can actually do damage if you answer the question in the wrong sort of a way with the wrong time and the wrong person. So we just want to care because I'm a shepherd and I love... I love sheep. I am one of those sheep, and Jesus loves you, and I don't want to do anything because if I mess that up, Jesus is going to hold me accountable, and I don't want to be held accountable in the wrong way. Does that make sense? Are we cool with that? All right. Okay. All right. Next question. Let's go. When someone dies, do they go straight to heaven, or are they in limbo until Jesus returns? I've heard conflicting things, and I am confused. So there are various scriptures that actually can be a little confusing when it comes to this. Um, I would default to the Apostle Paul who says very, very quickly, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I don't believe there's anything in that in-between time. I think last breath here, first breath there, I can't wait, I don't have a death wish, but I'm really looking forward to getting home to heaven. I'm just saying that. I mean, I think it's gonna be the best thing that has ever been, ever can be. I'm so excited for that particular day. It's weird. The older I get, the more I long for it. I just wanna experience the peace of heaven. I'm so excited about that. So, so, th th so there are specific pieces, and I believe the Apostle Paul speaks very definitively to it, to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord. There is an understanding of Old Testament saints 
and some of the teaching of the Old Testament that actually says that, that those who are dead in Christ will rise first and there's going to be this, this, this difference. The bottom line is this. I don't believe that you can create a spiritual implicitness when it comes to this one, even though there are very, that there are very varying opinions with regards to how this whole thing works. So I'm just going to share you my own pastoral opinion. Here's what I think. You're gone here. You know Jesus. You're there. Now, I'd also say this. Because according to the Bible, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I think people have this understanding that when one of our loved ones goes on before us, that, that there's this huge lag time in between. But I want you to picture it this way. If a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. If your loved one, let's say they pass on. So Laurel's dad has been gone for almost 30 years, which is just mind-blowing to me. I wish I would have had more time with him. But if we look at that, that, that breakout of a thousand years like a day, day is like a thousand years. The way I picture it in my head is this. Dad's crossing over the threshold of heaven and he turns around and we're right there. It's just like, like this. Now, why do I say that? I think it's important for us to understand this. Do you understand that your life is like this much of eternity? And that, it's stre- that eternity stretches in both directions. But we get so focused on this little, tiny sliver. I think we need to make that sliver count. I think we also need to be able to trust God with his timing and everything. But I am definitely in the New Testament camp of the Apostle Paul to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I believe all of those things are in very active present tense, especially in the original language. And so I would say that if I was going to attach myself to a specific opinion, even though I do know that there are some confusing passages in there, that that's where I would land theologically. I believe that is the most accurate portrayal of what happens to a believer in Jesus. The other thing that I would say is this. I've stood at the bedside of people who've known Jesus and people who have not. It can be one of the most beautiful things in the world to watch somebody just slip from this lifetime into the next one because this is what's there when they know Jesus, peace. You know what's absent when someone doesn't know Jesus in those final moments? Peace is absent. Choose peace. Choose peace. You know what gift I want to give to my family? I want them to have this in their head and their heart when I go home to be with Jesus. I want to leave my children and my wife no doubt about where Grant is. In fact, I want them to say, don't wish him back. He would come back kicking and screaming. He's longed for this his whole life. This is his whole thing right here in this moment uh, because I really believe that that's what God has called us to. So absent from the body, present with the Lord, nothing in between, okay? Now, I know some people might be thinking about um, uh, another type of a, of a belief system with regards to purgatory. I heard somebody laugh one time, and they said purgatory is like middle school. It's a place between heaven and hell where you go to pay for your sin. Um, I can't find the doctrine of purgatory anywhere in Scripture that holds those two things. I believe Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. So I don't need to go anywhere in between because all of my sin has been covered. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, it means Jesus is incredible. That's what it means. So here, there, boom, just like that. That's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. All right, let's go to the next one. If you accept Christ, but later in life reject him, are you still saved? 
you guys just go deep right away. All right. So um, I'm not going to turn to it. Hebrews chapter 6 actually delineates an understanding between backsliding, which we all do, and apostasy. Okay? Let me tell you the difference between the two. Backsliding is when I make a sinful decision. I know what God wants me to do. I decide I'm going to go and do the opposite because... I think I'm smarter than God sometimes because I think it's going to feel good. I think it's not going to be that big of a deal. I've learned that all of those excuses never, ever, ever bode well for me. I'm just saying it straight out. They just don't work. They don't hold water. Okay? So that's backsliding. That's a sinful decision in a moment. And we're all sinful. We're going to make those decisions. But the striving towards Jesus is actually what allows us to to keep a conscience about those things and always keep moving in the right direction. Because God has called us towards holiness and righteousness. That's what he wants for us. And that's what he wants from us. That's what we're supposed to do. Apostasy, my understanding of the original word is that it's actually a legal term, which means to revoke a decision willfully. So an apostate is someone who literally comes to the supreme judge of heaven and says, I want to revoke the gift that you gave me. I'm giving it back. Now that's heartbreaking. If you want to read more about that, you can read it in Hebrews chapter 6. It talks about those who've tasted of the first fruits but then walked away. But it's more than just a simple walking away. It's a complete revocation of what they believe. They're renouncing their faith. And this is what I know about God. I know that God pursues. So when we choose any other way but God's way, he pursues us. Willing to leave 99 behind in the care of good under-shepherds, but he'll go after one because he loves and cares that much. So he will pursue. I also know this because my mentor, John Havland, actually taught. He said, Grant, God is a gentleman. And he will respect your wishes. I believe, I believe it was um, C.S. Lewis, it might have been somebody else who said this, that that at some point in heaven to which God will, uh, at, at which some point in heaven, when we come to God and say, not my will be done, God will then respond to us, then thy will be done. So God respects the decisions that we make, even to walk away. But here's what I would say to someone who has chosen a life of apostasy, they've rejected God. Here's what I'm going to say to you. You just unleashed the hound of heaven after your heart. Because if you have revoked or renounced your faith, God now sees you as an unbeliever, which means he's coming for you. He loves you. His love compels you. His relentless love compels him to press into you even, even more. So do I believe that someone can reject God? Yes. Do I believe that someone can come to God and then renounce their faith? Hebrews chapter 6 actually says that's possible. Okay? Now, I know that there are different understandings. In fact, I was going to look at looking at another And another question here with regards to uh, not eternal salvation, but another element, John chapter 10, verse 10, because some of you might put your hand up and say, but Grant, the Bible says in John 10 that nothing, no one can pluck them out of my hand. That's true. No one can come willfully and take you out of there. But that's not the question. The question is, can you decide that you no longer want to be there? And I believe Hebrews chapter 6 would lead us to a different conclusion. 
as someone who has backslidden more times than I would care to admit. I'm amazed at the amazing grace of Jesus. I'll tell you what, if I was Jesus, I would have said a long time ago, hey, fish booked, you're done, time limit's up, you're on your own. But that's not the God that we serve. He pursues, he moves towards, he calls, the Bible says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He draws us and draws us and draws us. I think it's pretty amazing of God to give us an opportunity to ultimately make that decision. And even if we choose the opposite of what he would want for us, which is, that's it. Apostasy is the exact opposite of what God would want for us, that his response would still be, well, then I'll just pursue you more. I'll just pursue you more. The devil comes to seek, kill, and destroy. God comes to pursue, give life, and, and, and pull pieces back together again. So I think it's so unbelievably important. So if you're asking this from the first person, if you accept Christ but later in life reject him, are you still saved? I would say this, in that case as well, let's leave no doubt. Let's leave no doubt. I, I, want to, I want to live my life in such a way that there's no question mark about whether or not I've ever lost my salvation. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 talks about an inheritance that's guaranteed. There's this beautiful imagery there of a signet ring being planted and the only person who can break the seal of that signet ring is the regent who actually placed it there in the first place. And so I would say this, this would be God's appeal. Come to me, never leave me, but know if you do, I'll come for you. I think that's a beautiful story of grace. I wish I had 45 minutes to unpack that one because right now in my brain I'm going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But we'll, we'll, we'll leave it right that with that one, okay? All right, next question. Let's go to the next one. See Has the pandemic affected CTK financially? Oh, there's a straight up question. Um, so I would say, I would say this because... Um, I don't know what anybody gives around here. I don't know individually what anybody gives, um, but I do know because I get financial reports along with the other lead team members and the people that are here on the staff know they keep us very well informed as regards to how our, our church has done. Um, and what I would say is this, was there some effect in the initial days? Yes, there was, there was a downturn. And one of the things that disappeared was we didn't have people in the room. So the discretionary cash that people would put in offering buckets, that just kind of disappeared for a time. What was beautiful was, I think at the time when we first started, we had over 70% of people who were giving online already. And that was just so unbelievably helpful as we began to navigate. So one of the things that also happened was as, as our finances began to kind of move through this, this floating season, and everyone experienced it, right? We, I don't care where you worked or what you were doing. It affected all of us in different sorts of ways. Uh, back in those days, if you were trying to buy toilet paper from Costco, like, you know, good luck with that, right? And so it affected all of us in different ways. What also happened, though, was there was a, a set of expenses that came down because we weren't meeting in person, and so it kind of balanced out the scales for us. Here's what I can tell you. This church family has been unbelievably faithful and generous. Like I, to the point where I don't even have a box for you people anymore. 
I mean, I don't know if you were here for Easter when we announced it, but we needed $105,000 to build a restoration home in Belize to rescue women and children from sex trafficking, which is heartbreaking and evil, and we wanted to actually come against it. And as of just this past week, over just this past week, you guys have given over $480,000 towards that effort. And now here's here's the beauty of that. The beauty of that is because you gave more, we get to do more. Every dollar will go to the war against the evil of human trafficking in beliefs. That's what you gave it to. That's where it's going. But the beautiful thing is now we get to investigate other kinds of options and opportunities to go, God, what else do you want us to accomplish down there? Because now we get to do more. That means more. Here's one of the beautiful bonuses. We thought that the first rescues would probably be a year away from the project. What we know now is it could be as soon as this fall that they'll actually do the first rescue. This means a person who right now is being trafficked would be taken out of their environment and put in a safe place surrounded by people who know and love Jesus so that they can heal from the trauma of what they've been through and have their life completely transformed. So that's the kind of generosity that's been going on. Those are the things that we've been pressing into. So what I can tell you is we were affected financially. You have been unbelievably faithful. All of our campuses have actually kind of found their equilibrium now in the pandemic. And, and, and praise God, we're all standing on solid financial footing because of the graciousness and the generosity of every single one of your hearts and lots of people that are at home. So before I came up uh, to do church this afternoon, I was writing thank you cards. So I write thank you cards to people who give to CTK for the very first time. There was a, this last two months, I've gotten writer's cramp writing out these thank you cards. Um, We had 51 plus brand new giving units just to the missions offering alone. So 51 groups of people who've never given before gave to that, which was beautiful. And now I'm out, I mean, I used to, I used to like fill in the card and it was like, you know, Blaine, Linden, Bellingham and all this. Now it's like Missouri, Texas, California, Singapore, Malaysia. I'm just like, what in the world is going on? Um, Can I tell you what's going on? Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. No virus, no pandemic, no financial crisis can stop the church of Jesus from growing because Jesus is stronger than all that stuff. And it's important for us to remember. So so thank you for being generous. I, I don't have words to express. And we didn't know. We had no idea, just like you had no idea, whatever it was 14 months ago. We had no idea how this was gonna work. Um, wow, God's been good to us through you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, next question. All right. I have a very hard time with keeping my heart pure and staying away from being lustful. Matthew 5, 8 has been helping me a lot, but it's still so difficult. I feel so guilty and was hoping you could shed some light to help people that are struggling with this like me. Let me take a look at Matthew 5, 8 real quick. That appears to be a pretty important part of this context. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Can I say that again? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I think it is important to understand 
that, that God does place a, a level of responsibility on each one of us. I mean, that's why scripture says, take every thought captive. That means um, a lustful thought. That means an angry thought. So I'm going to bring everybody into equal opportunity being offended right now. So it can be an angry thought. It can be a lustful thought. It can be a judgmental thought, which I think many of us have struggled with over the last 14 months. Like if somebody doesn't agree with me, then what's wrong with you? And I don't know if you're making it to heaven. You know, that's the kind of thing process that we go through. There are um, um, prideful thoughts which come in. They're just errant, errant thoughts where we think ill of someone. We slander them inside of our brain. There's a murderous thought that happens on your way to work when someone cuts in front of you. And, and Jesus keeps upping the ante saying that, that whatever a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's who you are. And that's a struggle for all of us. So to the person who wrote the question, I'm going to say you're actually in really, really good company. Because it's a struggle for all of us to keep our hearts pure and to not objectify another person. Laurel and I just did a podcast on uh, the effect of pornography and its connection with human trafficking, actually. I'll tell you what, if, if I was to tell you the number of hours that I spent on a weekly basis talking to specifically men, but often it, it's how it affects the, their larger family, uh, about the effect of pornography and, and the way lust can come and grab a hold of your heart and it just becomes a default and we live in a culture that says it's okay and accepted. In fact, in parts of Christendom, it's accepted, which I don't understand at all. I think we could say that we all battle because we, we have, you know, we're a part of a hyper-sexualized culture and context and it's incredibly difficult to keep your mind poor pure and yet God still says this whatever is pure whatever is right whatever is noble whatever is honorable we're supposed to think on those things and so I think the question then becomes if I don't want to have to feel the guilt and the shame of experiencing the lustful thoughts what do I choose instead what do I choose instead so years ago, a very wise mentor came to me and said, so Grant, you're going to be, as a man, you're going to, you're going to be tempted, as, as a, as, whether you're a man of God or not, you're going to be tempted to look at daughters of God in a way that's not honorable. But here's what you need to look for first. Look for the fingerprint of Jesus on their soul first. It's very difficult to objectify somebody when you see the fingerprints of God first. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully on a woman. So it's a discipline moment. And it goes both ways. Believe me, I'm not just picking on the guys. Four out of 10 ladies struggles with pornography as well. Seven out of 10 guys, four out of 10 ladies. This is not a gender-specific struggle. We all battle it at some level. And yet God calls us into purity. What we need to understand, though, is this. When God says... Bring every thought captive. He wouldn't say that if it wasn't possible. God doesn't call us to something that's impossible for us. He calls us into something that actually benefits us. So it becomes a discipline of the mind to see the fingerprints of Jesus first. It's difficult to objectify anybody. We see the fingerprints, so you've got to look for that first. You discipline yourself. Normally, guys, could we just have an honest moment? First look, okay. Second look, sin. You know how it works, right? If I look twice, not good. So I have to discipline my mind. I'm not going to objectify ever. I'm going to choose to see the imprint 
of my Savior, my King, my Lord, and my God on that person, whoever that person happens to be. And so I think it's important for us to know that this verse here, as Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, that is both aspirational and it's a promise. It's a promise. And he told us how to do that. Whatever, whatsoever things are pure, beautiful, noble, trustworthy, think on such things. That's why I appeal with people. I mean, if you want to get your brain sucked in the wrong direction, focus on what's happening in the world. And I'm not talking about sticking your head in the sand and forgetting about stuff. No, we have to be aware. But it's what do I give my mind to first in the morning? Who gets my attention first thing in the morning? It should be two people. Jesus, my wife. That's that's who it should be. And when I discipline myself in that direction and I choose not to look, um, Gary Thomas has this beautiful saying. He goes, I, I'm not going to waste my time just warring against the evil. I want to champion the good. I'm going to choose to be a champion of the things that Jesus has created. So I would encourage the person who texted this in. The guilt and shame you're feeling is not coming from Jesus. Okay, we talk about this almost every time we haven't asked me anything. Conviction is when God comes to me and helps me correct and moves me in the direction of being loved. Okay, here's how I know it's conviction because it's wrapped in love from God. I want better for you. I want better for you. Condemnation is you're horrible. You're dirty. You're never going to get this right. You are your worst moment on your worst day. That's who you are, and we all know that. That is never Jesus. He doesn't talk that way. It's never Jesus. So I need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction calls me towards God. Condemnation pulls me away from God. And that guilt and shame, I need to understand where that's coming from. That's not coming from Jesus. In fact, the Bible says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. So I'm able to say things like this. Under the authority of Jesus' name, by the power of the blood shed on the cross, you don't get to talk to me that way. Because I'm a dearly loved son of the Most High God. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. I'm a warrior. I got armor available. Some days I put it on. Some days I leave it at home. But today I've got my armor on. I'm picking up the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the sword of truth. I'm going to actually fight you because my Bible says this. When I come back against you, you have to go. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. That's a sermon right there. Okay, let's preach that. All right? So that means when the guilt and condemnation comes, I have, to, I have to resist the pressure to turn away from God and I have to turn towards him. Because I'll remind you of what he said. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Make the decision today to reject the lustful thought, reject the condemnation, reject the guilt, Choose to think on what is pure. Turn to way towards God and not away from him. And understand that you are not alone in this battle, but this battle can be won. So I got an email uh, Thursday from a brother who just celebrated nine years clean and sober from pornography. Clean and sober. Clean and sober. You know how that journey started? He actually brought me his mouse, the mouse to his computer. 
he cut the cord. He said, I can't have this in my house. I can't do it anymore. Just about cost him everything. We had a celebration. I'm proud of my brother. That's good work. And you can live in freedom and in victory from that. You do not need to stay in bondage. And we will be praying for you. Thank you for being honest with your, with your question. That one's a big one. It really, really is. Okay, all right. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Next question. I'm going to church and I like the lessons, but I'm not 100% sure I believe in God. How can I take my faith to the next step? So that just makes my heart smile right there. Like going to church, like the lessons. Not 100% sure I believe in God. You are in the best place that you could ever be. Skeptics and seekers are us around this place. We welcome you. We are so glad that you are choosing to investigate. I think one of the greatest steps that we can take as we move towards God is to, is to simply open our heart and say, God, I... Well, I keep thinking right now as I close my eyes and I'm just kind of praying through this whole thing. I think about the dad who, who brought his demon-possessed boy to Jesus. And if I could describe this story to you, he, he brings his little boy and it's just, it's just heartbreak because Jesus asks, asks this man a question, how long has he been like this? And the man says, for a long time. So you may have been checking out God for, for a long time and, and there's a level of tension that's there it's, it's, and it can be hard and then Jesus actually saves the little boy from demon possession he grows completely calm but in the, in the tension and the pressure of everything the father prays this beautiful prayer God I believe help my unbelief I think your next step should be, God, I want to believe, show me how. God, I want to, I, I, want, I want to believe in faith, show me how. Because what that does is it opens a relational door that God loves to operate in and walk back and forth through. He just loves to do that. I had so many questions about faith. And I'm kind of triggering off of this one place. I'm not 100% sure I believe. How many of us honestly kind of hover around that 96, 97 times, right? And then it's up and then down and then it's just like, I want a good day, bad day, so many different things. Um, I can say with certainty in this moment, I believe in God with everything that I have inside of me, but all what I also know is this, is I believe in him and he believes in me. And I believe to the person who wrote this question, here's what I can tell you. You may be struggling to believe in God. God is not struggling to believe in you. He named you. He called you. He set you apart for a beautiful purpose. He loves you. He wants you. He will pursue you in the purest way possible. So many people in this church have had an experience just like yours. So I would say, how can I take my faith to the next step? I really believe it's in making a declaration to God and say, God, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. God, show me who you are. Show me where you are. Show me your love for me. Show me in your word what it is that you want for me today.
in this moment. God, make yourself real. I don't believe that God's offended when we have those kinds of questions or when we ask, like, God, I need you to show up for me. I had a moment this past week. I was just having a struggle. It was just having a human moment, all the rest of it. And I cried out to God with everything inside of me. And this is what he said. I will show up strong for you. I will show up strong for you. I needed that in that moment. So I want to encourage you. I mean, I want to encourage you to continue that journey as you're walking through. Another thing that you could do is this. I would love to challenge you to reach out to someone that you know that does believe in God or someone here at the church, one of your pastors, because we would love to sit down in a non-condemning, non-judgmental sort of a way. Let's talk through some of your questions. Let's talk through your story. I don't know who you are, but I'd love to know your name. And I'm not saying we'll be able to do that, but I would love for you to get connected with other believers because here's what I do know is that we've all had that journey towards God and we would love to walk with you in that journey. You're not alone and we'd love to encourage you in that community to step in. Another opportunity would be this rooted thing that we got going on, which is how do I get my roots to go deeper and deeper? Well, we got folks in rooted who, I mean, let's just be honest. They're still asking questions. I'm not sure about this Jesus thing. We want to investigate the claims of Christ together. I would also encourage you to do this. Uh, the book of John starts with a very religious guy who was going to church a lot. His name was Nicodemus. And he was so afraid of the, of the ramifications of his community that he showed up under the cover of darkness and he and Jesus had an incredible conversation. I would encourage you, you may want to check out Nicodemus' story because it sounds like you and he may have a lot in common. So I would also point you towards John. I would, I would start John 1, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. But you're going to find the story of Nicodemus in there and I know you'll be encouraged because what you're going to find out is this. Jesus has a place for seekers and skeptics. And he'll meet you and answer your questions. But we'd love to be a part of that process too. All right? Okay, we got time for one more. Can we take one more? You guys got a couple minutes? It's raining outside. You don't have anywhere to go. Come on. Uh, when, uh, when do you have time for your family with the demands of being a pastor in a big church? You know, that's a question of priorities. And we all face priorities. I don't care what you do for a living. We all have to make priorities and, and, and decisions every single day. Um, what I know is this. Scripture actually says um, that as a, as a pastor, you were called to pastor your family first. And I cannot claim to have done a perfect job in that. Not even close. Not even close. I think we're all in therapy for the sins of our parents, right? That's just kind of the way it works, right? And our kids are going to have to, we all have to struggle through those issues. But I also believe God calls us to put first things first. And you'd actually probably be surprised um, how low on my priority level um, pastoring is. I love pastoring, by the way. I love it with my whole heart. Um, but I was called to be a follower of Jesus first. I was called to be a husband second. I was called to be a father third. I was actually called to be a friend fourth. And if you keep on going down there, you'll find pastoring probably down here in, in, in position number eight or nine. But what I know is this, is that God calls us to put first things first, because I know this. If I get to heaven, and there's a whole bunch of people who came to Jesus through the quote-unquote ministry, 
and there's three, now five people missing, I will be heartbroken. Because I believe that the presence of my family is one of the things that will most honor and glorify God. One of the things I love about this church is any, any decisions I've made to not prioritize my family have not been on this church, they've been on me. And there have been times that I've really screwed it up. I'll just be honest. But I love the fact that we're always being called back into loving our family over and over and over again. And let's face it, sometimes that can be really, really tough. You know, if you think your family's messed up, you should look at Jesus' family sometime. <laughs> that gives me a lot of hope. It really, really does. Also, would love to give you something on top of that. Um, uh, I was supposed to do this a little bit earlier, but I forgot, so now I'm going to do it now. So Laurel and I have been doing this podcast. Uh, it's called Continuing the Conversation with Grant Laurel Fishbook. And actually, Laurel kind of moderates the thing and keeps the conversation moving, and I just get to sit in the corner and chime in every once in a while. It's been really, really unique. It's been a great experience, a lot of fun. Thing. It's been a fun thing to do together, even though it's a ton of work. Um, we did the pornography one, which we knew was going to be a niche, like, not everyone struggles with that. Not everyone wants to talk about those really, really difficult topics, but we dove into that one. This next one, we have already found has resonated with people all over the place. Um, so Gary Thomas, who's actually a, a phenomenal, best-selling author. Uh, Gary wrote Sacred Influence, Sacreding, um, Sacred Influence, Sacred Parenting, Sacred Marriage. Um, Laurel and I are actually one of the chapters in the Sacred Marriage thing because of some stuff that we went through. It's been actually really encouraging. Um, but we, Gary wrote a, a brand new book called When to Walk Away, How to Deal with Toxic People. I'm thinking that is about as relevant as it can possibly be right now. Because if you don't have, I mean, just go to your Facebook feed. You don't need to find a toxic person. There's one there. They're there, right? All right. And so what do we do? And so we created this podcast about when do you actually get permission from God to walk away? And we spent an hour, we released it, we actually dropped it, I think, Thursday night or Friday morning, and it's already just picking up speed, and people are sharing it all over the place. When it comes to prioritizing your family, I think we also need to all learn how to have really good boundaries, whether it's a family, a friend, a coworker, an employee, someone like that. And God actually has some incredible things to say to his people about, there's a moment you can actually draw a loving line and say, you don't get to own my soul anymore. So if I could make a shameless plug, because we talk about the prioritization of healthy relationships, because that's what that is, right? When we prioritize healthy relationship, the family of God flourishes, and God is honored in everything that we do. And so I want to just encourage you. It's called Continuing Conversation, Grand Laurel Fishbook. It's all on the major podcast platforms. And uh, I enjoyed being a part of the conversation. Hopefully you guys would enjoy uh, listening to it over the next little bit. So, all right. Saturday night, you got us off to a great start. We'll find out which service has the courage to ask me the vaccine question tomorrow because I know it's coming sooner or later, and so do you. So you can check in tomorrow if you'd like to. We're at the end of our time. Let me pray, pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, prayer.ctk.church is where you go. Let's pray together. God, thank you for an opportunity to have a conversation. Thank you for an opportunity, hopefully, to bring your word and some encouragement. God, for each and every person who submitted a question, I thank you that you're the answer. So God, for those that need to be delivered from guilt and shame, may they be delivered. From those that need to be encouraged by making family priority, I pray that they would do that today.
God, for those who who are uh, just in the struggle of belief, God, I pray that they would whisper, help my unbelief, because I know you will show up. God, thank you that you have the end of our life all mapped out, and I, I claim, I claim the promise today to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord. So God, bless this family. Thank you for an opportunity to have this conversation. May you bless all the conversations tomorrow. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Christ the King. So glad that you're here. If you're in the room or at home or in a coffee shop or sitting in your car, we're so glad to be able to uh, spend this time together. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant, and uh, we're going to do something a little different. Before we do, can we say thanks to Mike and the team? They drove all the way up. It's so good. Thanks, buddy. so fun to have friendships that transcend time and space and employment and all that other stuff and be able to reconnect with some of our worship leaders from days gone by. It's been such a treat over the last couple months. That's actually going to continue through the summer as well. And so uh, it, it's going to be exciting to have Aaron and Sam and Mike and Uriah and a bunch of different people and Andy and Emma and Teresa and all the normal folks around here too. It's going to be great to have everyone together. So uh, uh, if, if you don't know what we're doing today, let me kind of give you just a quick primer so you understand how this works. We believe that, that Christianity is actually supposed to be a conversation and that it's great when people preach and teach because that's what we do here 90% of the time. But every once in a while, we decide, let's just do something a little bit different. What if instead of me having a monologue and talking at you, what if we had a dialogue and we just talked back and forth? What if we kind of dropped the pretense and, and just kind of moved the stuff to the side and we just had an honest, raw conversation? And I remember when, when Ask Me Anythings were kind of being formed and, and it became, uh, well, what if we really took the filters off? And what if, what if you didn't know the questions ahead of time? And what if you just showed up with your Bible and started talking and that's a scary thought, but at the same time, it's kind of human. Because I don't know about you, when I talk with a friend, I don't, I don't show up with a prescribed script. I just show up and talk. So uh, right now, you have an opportunity to text in a live question if you want to. Uh, the number is 360-399-6360. They're going to put that up on the screen in just a second. There it is. And then I'm going to do this awkward thing with my hand because everything is reversed. There it is right there. All right? 360-399-6360. You can text in a question. I'll tell you what happens to the question. It goes into the booth where uh, Randy Borland and Angel Finsrid are sitting right now, and they actually go through them. Um, because what we do is we try to make sure that the questions that are asked have a, a wide... Uh, 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 a broad application to as many people as possible. And, and so we want you to know uh, there's nothing we won't talk about. We're not going to duck and weave anything. Uh, but at the same time, we want to make sure that the questions actually have a, have a broad application for everybody. And so we're going to dive into those in just a couple of moments. But here's my heart as we get ready to start this. First of all, when I pray into these weekends, it's like, God, um, help me do no harm. Because it is a little bit scary when you think that God says that your tongue is a restless evil full of poison, right? You can do a lot of damage with your words if you're not, if you're not careful. So I've been praying all morning. Just God, give me your heart and your eyes. Help me feel your love for people. Help me to see into the context of the questions. And God, may, may your words come out of my mouth. And may I not get in the way. That's the heart behind the whole thing. I'm also going to say this. I'm a pastor. Okay, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a politician, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to speak from a pastoral perspective as best I can, and uh, we're going to dive into it together and see what happens, all right? You ready? Got your seatbelt? 
Let's find out what happens. Okay, all right, first question. Let's pop it up on the prompter. You guys could say that. Could you speak to why belong, believe, behave is important to CTK in that order? Oh, I love talking about this one. Okay? So we actually have that as one of our, um, it's a core value to us. That we invite people to belong to this family while they're investigating. We had a question last night from somebody who said, I, I'm not sure I 100% believe in God, but what should I do next? And my, my, my response was, you're in such good company here. We love skeptics. We love people who ask hard questions. We love people that are not convinced because guess what? We were all there at some point walking together towards Jesus. So we invite people to belong, which by the way is really messy. It's really messy because we don't ask people to follow a dress code or do certain things before they walk in the door. It's like, it's like you, don't need to, you don't need to do any of that stuff. We just want you to come in raw like, and be real. And, and if you say, you know, when you walk in the door, I'm perfect, I got everything. It's just like we've got classes in denial for you right away that you can start with, which is really important. And the reason we invite people to belong is because the Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So come and belong be a part of the dysfunctional family, and then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's it. That's, that's everything for us. We basically have two pieces, this book and Jesus. That's how it works for us at this family. And we dive into the midst of all of that, and then we look at this behavior thing kind of down the road. God's gonna take care of the things he's gonna take care of. Whatever he needs to clean up, he's gonna clean up in his good time. And when you have a full relationship with him, it's amazing the stuff that's in your life that used to matter that doesn't matter anymore. Now, here's why it matters. Because um, the church world is famous, or maybe infamous, for actually having this the other way around. Which is, you better behave before you show up. You better know what to say, when to say it. You better know what to do. I mean, you better just get your act together, and then we might let you be a part of our club. And we're going to assume you already believe all of the things that we believe. And oh, by the way, if you don't believe what we believe, then we're going to have to have a different kind of a conversation because there's no way you're going to get to belong if you still have a mess on your hands. They flip it, right? And I'm not saying I'm not judging anybody else. All I know is this. When I came to CTK all those years ago, I needed a place to belong because I had some stuff and I was doing my best to manage my image and be really good I mean I was a good Christian church boy I checked all the boxes I had I had the, the Iwana awards I had the Sunday school attendance award I had all that stuff and in the inside it was just empty and dying for more so we believe that it is that it that it follows the heart of Jesus to say come and hang out have you seen Jesus' disciples. Have you, have you looked at those guys? Do you know that most of the disciples were probably somewhere between 16 and 22? They're young guys. And they're messy. They're messy. Simon the Zealot carried a knife around so that he could stick people, like either Roman, it didn't matter. He was just like, that's just who he was. Peter's got a mouth and an attitude on top of that. Matthew, the tax collector, he's working for the bad guys. And Jesus says, I'm gonna pick these 12 and go change the world. I love the dysfunction of that. So unbelievably messy. So we do, we believe in the core of our being that the best way to allow Jesus to people to experience Jesus is you come and belong. It's okay, bring all your stuff with you. 
just bring all, the, all, the, all that stuff. Just bring it, bring it, bring it. We'll get it to the foot of the cross. And then we're gonna believe that Jesus is the only answer, the only one that can actually change anything inside of us. And then we'll worry about the behavior part of it a little bit later on. So I will tell you this. Um, it happens <laughs> with startling regularity. People will come up to me and they'll go like, hey, Grant, there's people smoking in front of the church. And my response is, I know. Isn't it great? And they get this look on their face like, well, well, da, 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 da. and I'm just like, no, everybody has their stuff. Everybody's working through their stuff. And then I say the same thing. You guys have heard me say this before. You know, we don't believe smoking will keep you out of heaven. In fact, it'll get you there a whole lot quicker if you keep doing that and just saying. Amen. Uh, there you go, it just gets you there faster. And so that's the part of it. But, but here's the deal. Everybody's got their stuff and they gotta work with. Apparently, you're dealing with some issues on judgment. And so we're gonna work through that with you too. And, 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 and what we're gonna do is this. Only Jesus can change a human heart. And when Jesus changes a human heart, then behavior and all that other stuff, it just starts moving on its own. So we believe that. That was a long answer on a short question. Let's keep going. All right, next one. I like that question. What does the Bible say about the vaccine? Here we go. All right. All right. <laughs> you knew it was coming sooner or later. Saturday night chickened out. They didn't bring it. All right. So, okay. Let's just start with this. As in all things, as in all things, there are matters of conviction and there are matters of conscience. And how you hold those actually says a lot about your heart with God. So as soon as we start talking about vaccine and all that other kind of stuff, if the response that, that erupts out of you is either anger or fear, I'm gonna remind you of something. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So that's what should come out of us in any of these conversations. <clears throat> and so every one of us has to have a conviction about this, but this one happens to be a matter of conscience. I'm going to encourage you, when people start trying to make the Bible fit around your personal opinion, you got it upside down and backwards. So we start here. And I'm gonna say this to you. I actually have room for all of the opinions. I get it, I understand. In fact, I'd encourage you to hold your opinion graciously, like Jesus would hold on to it. So I think that's important. I think it's important to use good wisdom in trying to make these decisions. Because as with all vaccines, you have to make your own decision, which means you should probably talk to your doctor and you should do your research and you should do all of that kind of stuff. What drives me nuts as a pastor is when people start superimposing scripture on top of something and claiming that that's how God thinks about everything. And I'm just like, well, let's just process this through. So I think it's important for us to at least approach that from the beginning. Uh, so you get to make up your decision and I'm gonna honor whatever decision you make. And I'd like you to do the return for me. Because we did make a decision. So Laurel and I made a decision together about how we were gonna approach this. And I'll tell you specifically how we arrived at it. And then I'm actually gonna tell you what we did. I'm not gonna try and hide anything because I don't think that does anybody any good. But when I say what we decided to do, I want you to understand this is a decision between you and God, not you and me. And we can hold various opinions in this room. I think that's the way families are supposed to be, right? We just hold them graciously. So when it, comes to, when it comes to this, we had to make a decision with regards to how we were going to approach this vaccine. So we did our research. Um, 
And we looked at it long and hard, and, and these were the things that factored into it. One of them is this. Uh, Laurel and I are on the front line of ministry, which means we are with people who are in highly vulnerable categories. And Romans 13 says, love does no harm to its neighbor. So we never wanted to do any harm. So we made the decision to get the vaccine. We actually had our second one a couple of weeks ago. All right? We made that decision together. A part of this was out of protection for the people that we're with. So we, we were with a precious precious prayer warrior just this past week who's going home to be with Jesus any day and when Virginia gets home oh there's going to be a party in heaven because she's been a prayer warrior for us for years we would never want to put Virginia at risk or her caregivers or the people that are looking after her we just would never want to expose them knowingly or unknowingly to that so a part of it was the people that we work with and we do a lot of frontline ministry and I'm in and out of, of, of facilities and care facilities, loving people and shepherding people and doing the best we can. And I, I just think that doesn't mean I have a lack of faith in God. In fact, my scriptural identity, our spiritual identity actually weighed into this a lot. My Bible says this, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. My Bible says no one can pluck me out of God's hand and I have a high view of God's sovereignty which means I trust him. That doesn't mean I'm foolhardy. It just means my identity in Christ comes first. And that means we have to be bold. It means we have to keep ministering. We can't hide. So that was a part of it. Another part of it was this. Um, we do a lot of international travel. If you saw my vaccination record, you'd go, wow. I mean, I, I've been stuck with typhoid, yellow fever, all the heps, bubonic plague. I don't know what all they're just shooting, but I'm just like, that's a means for us to be able to do international ministry. You can't go to Africa without those vaccinations. And that, that weighed into our decision. Because, I mean, as soon as we possibly can, believe me, we want to get back out there with some of our global partners and have conversations and love them because they've carried the weight of this even more than we have. And we want to be face-to-face. -face, and when that opportunity comes, here's another piece. Um, Laurel's mom's 91. And she's in Saskatchewan, and we want to see her really, really bad. We haven't seen her in over a year. And she's precious to us, and, and you know, my dad just turned 80. And I mean, we have family on the other side of the line in Canada that we can't get to, and I think in order to get them, we're probably going to need to be able to prove certain things, and so we just want to be able to do that. But ultimately, it comes down to a decision, and you need to make your decision. What I want to encourage you to do is do it factually and also do it biblically. So can I put something to rest once and for all? In spite of what all of the internet people may be saying, Revelation 13 makes it very, very clear, okay? The mark of the beast, and I know some of you are going, seriously, Grant? I'm like, yeah, seriously, I get this all the time, too often. The mark of the beast is not something that gets slipped to you without your knowledge, okay? It's not the way it is. Revelation 13 says specifically that because of economic pressure, there's going to be a mark placed on the back of the right hand, I almost did my left, on the right hand or the forehead, that's it, okay? This is not the same thing. And I have studied as hard as I can in the original languages, and it means what it means. In fact, when people ask me questions about this, this has become a little bit more of my standard response. Are you more obsessed with the mark of the beast or the mark of the lamb? 
I want to be known for the mark of the Lamb. I want to carry the mark of Jesus everywhere that I go. I want people to, to know that in the depth of my heart, that is who I am and what I care about because I love Jesus more than anything. He's the only one that's going to take us out of this when it's his good time and in his good preparation. And so we need to hold on to those things. The Bible says over and over again as we get closer and closer to the end that the response of God's people is supposed to be two words, patient endurance. Patient endurance. So we need to walk through this together. We should be the people of we should be the people of the least fear anywhere. You know why? Because we serve the lion and the lamb. Same one together. So you need to make a decision. We made our decision. I'm going to respect your decision. I would love to think that you would respect ours because of that whole thing. Um, and there's lots of conversations that can happen around this kind of thing. I just want to make sure that we're being both biblical, that we're being balanced, and that we understand that together, um, while this seems to be a matter of cultural importance, which is important, it's not a matter of first importance because as the church of God, we've been called to carry the message forward of Jesus and Jesus is the Prince of Peace and perfect love casts out all fear and nothing can pluck us out of the hand of God. We are good, therefore we need to be bold in teaching the message of Jesus right now and not getting caught up in all the other stuff. I got seven amens, that's awesome. That's great. Okay, that's my answer. I'm sticking with it, 10.09. All right, here, just keep going. Oh, this looks interesting. I'm a fan of horror movies, and I have horror movie decor in my home. I've been told multiple times it's not Christian. In my heart, I love God no matter what. What are your thoughts on that subject? Hoo-wee! <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So here's what I know. Um, we have a culture that, that, that has a bit of a fixation when it comes to fear. And we love to scare ourselves. We love to scare ourselves. And yes, I have an issue with that. And let me tell you why. Because the verse that I just quoted is actually as biblical as it's going to get. Perfect love casts out all fear. So when someone has a, 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 a dabbling with fear or they like to play with fear, I think you're opening the wrong door. The Bible says specifically whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are right, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are trustworthy, think on these things. Why? Because what is in our mind, I mean, the Bible says out of the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Bible also says in Proverbs that whatsoever a man thinks, so is he. That's the product. So the fact that, that in the question it says, I've been told multiple times it's not Christian, I think we need to understand what it is that's representative. Now, I'm not a big fan of the word Christian anymore. It's been too watered down. I like the word Christ follower or Jesus follower because that shows my team like right there at the beginning. And so when, it's, when, I, when I see the comment there, I've been told multiple times it's not Christian. What I think is this. Paul would ask this question and he asks it multiple times in Romans. What are you known for? What's your reputation? I don't want to be known primarily as a horror movie fan. I want to be known as a Jesus follower. I want to be known as a Bible thumper. Got no problem with that whatsoever. I want to be known by something that actually points people in the direction of Jesus. And so my thoughts on the subject are this. I love the fact 
that in your heart you love God no matter what, then I think you need to ask the question, if I love God no matter what, which thank you for saying that, that's awesome. If I love God no matter what, then what do I want to be known for? Do I want to be known for things that provoke fear or do I want to be known for things that provide peace? Because Jesus said he was the Prince of Peace period, and wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. I mean, all of those other beautiful things. So my thoughts are that I don't believe it's a healthy, I don't believe that it's a healthy uh, fixation or obsession or even interest in order to be able to do. I think God is calling us to a different kind of thinking, and I would encourage you to, pr- to press into that with everything and say, God, if, if, I don't, if, if you don't want me to bring these things into other people's lives and my own lives, then what do you want me to bring along with me? I want to bring the fruit of the Spirit everywhere that I go. Keep coming back to it. Love, joy, peace, patience. I think that's what brings about a godly reputation that actually, asks, that actually prompts people to say, what about Jesus in all of the conversations that we're having? Okay? Thank you for your honesty, by the way, and thank you for, for just throwing that one out there. I appreciate your courage. I really, really do. And I'd love to have further conversation um, if that would work. All right, next one. If God is real, if God loves me, if God is all-powerful, if God heals, why does he continue to watch me physically suffer? How could a loving God who has the power to do something still choose to do nothing? I get this question a lot. Um, I do a, a, a Q&R show, question and response show on YouTube with a group called Jesus.net on Tuesday morning. This shows up, this shows up significantly uh, about every other week or so. So let me, uh, let me speak to what is right and true. God is real. God does love you. God is all-powerful. And God can heal. Why does he continue to watch me physically suffer? That, that, that is a tension that has been in scripture and in humanity for years. It's the book of Job all laid out together. How could a loving God who has the power to do something still choose to do nothing? I think that's one of the primary misassumptions that we make, that God is doing nothing. That God is doing nothing. So uh, Johnny Erickson Tata who uh, has been a quadriplegic most of her life. She's a prolific writer. She's a prolific author. Um, she said a quote the other day, and it just captured my heart. She said, when, when, I, when I get to heaven, and I know I'm going to murder this one, but stay with me for just a second. When I get to heaven, I want to bring my wheelchair with me. And when I get an audience in front of Jesus, I want to say, Jesus, you said, you said that in this world we would have trouble. Well, that wheelchair was a lot of trouble to me. It was a lot of trouble to me. But I want to thank you for it. Because what I learned in and through that wheelchair changed me, molded me, made me more dependent and intimately intertwined with you. I loved the sentiment of that. I also love how she ended it because when she finished her discourse, she said, and now you can take that wheelchair and send it straight to hell, (laughs) which I thought was beautiful. I believe that sometimes we look at physical suffering through the lens of that somehow God is punishing, that somehow God is hurting, that somehow God takes great pleasure. The Bible actually says it's exactly the opposite. He says he takes no pleasure at all in the suffering of people. 
And yet this is a moment when we have to choose whether or not we're going to trust God in the middle of it while still holding to the belief that God can heal and that God does heal. We don't understand his timing. We don't understand the interactions of those things. But there's so much in scripture where God just says that this actually, this actually is, is a part. It's a part of a grander plan. And I know that's really hard when the plan hurts. But to be able to say, God, I choose to trust you. I choose to believe. I choose to believe that you are doing something in me and through me and with me and for me that is transformative. And I, I believe that sometimes one of the most difficult things about physical suffering is that we're in the pain in that moment and it's really difficult when you're in the center of it to have eyes that look forward. And yet God keeps talking about the process through which he redeems and restores and changes and shifts and moves inside of us. What I do know is this, and believe me, I'm so not trying to trivialize anyone's pain. Pain can be a beautiful teacher. There are things that we don't learn when everything's just good all the time. And that's why God says, in this world, you will have trouble. Finish the verse. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Which means there is a purpose and a plan. So I have a, a close friend who's an atheist. And, and his, his angst and his anger always boils up in the fact that in the, he goes, this is the one thing I don't have an answer for. In the midst of pain, I have nothing and you have peace. Like it's because I know God's working out a plan. I may not understand it and it may not be. So to whoever it was that, 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 that wrote in, I want you to know this. God is not just passively watching. He's not taking delight in this. And he's not choosing to do nothing. He's working something in you. My question would be, can you open your heart and say, God, I want to look at this differently. Teach me. Show me. I'm going to do something. This is crazy, but I have no idea why, but I'm going to, just going to go with what I feel prompted. Um, if you're in the room and you deal with either a disability or chronic pain at some level, would you be brave enough? Can you stick your hand straight up? About half of your family is walking where you walk. Don Silvis, God bless your heart. So I've, I, I've sat alongside of Don on more occasions. Heart issues, different things going on. You, my brother, have been a witness to me of how to walk through pain and give glory to God. My wife is sitting right over here. I have, Laurel has been my teacher, my professor, and my instructor on how you walk with a process as God works this out inside of you. And I have seen a level of intimacy with Dawn and with Laurel. I'll tell you what, when you walk into the Jesus room and Laurel's talking to Jesus, it's like you're on holy ground. And so to whoever walked in, I hope that you knew there were hands all over the place. It means you're not alone. And I would love to do nothing more right now than to pray for you. 
because you need to know you're not alone, not only within your family, but with the God who loves you. And my prayer is that you would see God differently. What I love about Jesus more than anything is that when it comes to pain, he proved to us that he does not sidestep. He steps in. He did it for us, and he does it with us. I love that part of Jesus. Because that means he doesn't take, he doesn't sit on the sideline and, and, and go, oh, I hope, you, I hope you get through it. No, 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 he actually steps into it, feels it, experiences it, carries it with us. So I think that's really, really important. So could we pray together right now? Would everyone, um, Father God, for whoever it was that texted in this question, I pray right now that Jesus, that the presence of Jesus would be so thick and so personal right now for them. God, I pray that, that you would open the eyes of their heart to see that there is purpose in this. God, I pray that they would know that God is not offended by their persistent cry for healing. He loves that. God, I thank you that you are there, that you are with, that you are for, that you are above and below on both sides, God, that you are present in that moment. Lord, and I pray that for my brother or my sister, whoever that wrote this, I pray that they would see that God is not doing nothing. He's doing everything right now. He's changing. He's moving. He's processing. He's pouring into. He's giving strength. He's giving courage. God, thank you that you are God that does not sidestep pain, but you step into it in the middle of it. And you carry it, God. You buffer us. You surround us with your presence and your passion. So God, I pray for my brother and sister that, that the eyes of their heart would be opened and that they would see you and all that you are doing in their life. God, may they, um, may they have the heart of the Apostle Paul who heard the beautiful words. My grace is sufficient. But God, I pray that they would go on a journey through Scripture and see all of the other things that you said about pain and its process and its perfecting. We trust you with this journey. It's not easy, and there are no easy answers, so God, may we not fool ourselves into thinking there are. May the presence of God tangibly rest I'm the person who texted in this question right now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through whom all strength, power, endurance, joy, and healing comes from. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Okay. Let's go to the next one. What verse do you turn to the most when you're having a bad day? That changes on a minute-by-minute minute basis. What verse do I turn to? So um, I found some new ones. Uh, there's a Deuteronomy chapter 4. I think it's about verse 11 somewhere in there that says that, that, that you can ask from one side of heaven to the other. So when I'm having a bad day, that normally means I'm asking questions and I'm frustrated and I'm like, God, why are you doing this and why aren't you doing that? And, and we all ask questions like that. It's just like, why? I don't understand. And I try to shift my whys into who's. You know what I'm talking about there? Because it's really easy to get stuck in, you know, why me, why this, why that, and all the rest of that. And I try to shift it into who. 
who is greater, who is stronger, who holds all details in the palm of their hand, who can deliver, who is strong. There's only one answer, Jesus. There's only one answer, Jesus. But there's permission in Deuteronomy 4, which I, which I love, um, to just ask questions from one side of heaven to the other. Like, just lay them out there. I've been learning that new and fresh, that when God asks, when God says you can ask a question, he actually means it. Go ahead, ask the question. And then listen for an answer. Listen for an answer. So I, I've been turning to that. There are ones that I learned years ago. Um, the one that I preached about last week. What? <laughs> know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is the name that you are not your own. You're bought with a price. Honor God with your body. That's a truncated version. I love that one because it means I need to honor God with this, this thing um, that God stuck me inside of for all of these years. And, and, and I want to steward that well. So I love that one. Um, I love the verse. It brings me great comfort. Um, his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. I don't understand. And that's Okay but I need to sit in a position of trust. Um, I love, because I say it a lot when I'm doing declarations on the way in um, to work on a regular basis, this one shows up. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I love that one. That's declaration. Um, I love verses where it says, God is my refuge, my hope, and ever-present help in times of trouble. I hold on to those ones because it's so... Um, and, and another one of my favorite verses when I'm having a hard time is... Um, so I love, I, love, I love Jesus and the fact that his brother James, that they had that kind of connection. I mean, think about it. If you got a brother, how much would it take for you to believe they were the son of God, right? That, that's a pretty big leap, Right? So you got James here. James shows up. This is funny because I just saw two brothers just have a contact right over here. That's awesome. I love that. But, but I love the fact that, that there's, there's this counsel going on and people are making up rules as to how you got to get in the family of God. And they're actually recommending that, that everyone should have to have a surgery, that all the guys should have a sexual surgery in order to get into the family of God and there's children watching so I'm being okay but to all the men in the room you should be really 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 thankful that that rule didn't get voted in at this particular council just saying okay and but what I love is this in the midst of all of this theological discourse James stands up and says this can we not make it difficult for those who are coming to Jesus and when I have a bad day, I come back to that. I can have my issues, I can ask my questions, I can go all this stuff. But here's what, here, here, here's what I want to ask Jesus. Can we not make it difficult for those who are coming to you? And he says the same thing every single time. Yes, let's not make that difficult. So those are the things that I turn to. Uh, we did a whole series here on the promises of God. I love the promises of God. I cling to them because he doesn't break his promise. He always stands true. I see this book as not only an instruction book, but it's a beautiful love letter. I love Old Testament stories. I love Old Testament stories. I love the hope that comes in the Gospels. I love the structure and the order that comes in the Pauline epistles. I love the hope of Revelation. I get in trouble these days because people keep coming, well, Revelation says, Revelation says, Revelation says, I know. Can we go back to the first verse? What is it a revelation of? It's not a revelation of fear. It's not a revelation of freak out. First couple of verses. It's a revelation of Jesus. And if this, if reading this does not bring about a greater revelation of Jesus, you're reading this book through the wrong lens. Amen. 
as we cling to Jesus. All right. That's a nice question. I appreciate that. I think we got time for one more. It's 1028 because I'm committed to getting you out of here. Can a meth addict who believes in God, who has asked Jesus to be his savior, make it into heaven? If they know in their heart that they will continue to sin, does that mean they don't really believe? I cannot believe what an honor it is to try to answer that kind of real question, right? I love the fact that you believe that you could ask that. That just makes my heart smile. Thank you for being a part of our family. Like, I sincerely mean that. So here's the first part. Can a meth addict who believes in God, who has asked Jesus to be his savior, make it into heaven? So let's deal with the first part, okay? You say you believe in God. You've asked Jesus to be your savior, which opens a door to eternity. So what we're talking about here is not about the saviorship of Jesus, it's about the lordship of Jesus. Okay? So we're going to do this one step at a time. I think we're going to be shocked at who's in heaven and who's not. I think we're going to be shocked. One of the reasons we're going to preach through the parables this summer is because God always does this, you know, hey Jesus, is it option A, B, or C? He's like, H. (laughs) It's not how you think and how you see things. So I believe what I'm hearing inside of the um, inside of the question is that you know Jesus, you believe in God, but you question whether or not in your heart you can ever break loose of that addiction. So let me step above the question just a little bit. You don't have to be a pastor to say greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can be struggling with whatever you're struggling with and make that declaration of truth. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I want you to know this. Right now, as I look across this room... I can see multiple people who are former meth addicts and former pornography addicts and former alcoholics and former adulterers and former hypocrites and Pharisees. I see a lot of formers in this room who stood at the crossroads where you are standing right now. I am not trying to duck your question. What I know is this. You need to first step across the lie that your addiction owns you. This is a question of ownership. If you know Jesus, Jesus owns you in the best way possible. He chose you. He loves you. And now we're going to work through the process, the difficult work of extracting that addiction. Here's what I can tell you. The only one who can do that is Jesus Christ. 
He's the only one. And I know, because of the way you wrote your question, if you know in your heart that they will continue to sin, that's a lie the enemy is telling you. He's telling you over and over again, there is no hope for you, you are hopeless, you cannot break free. To all of my recovery brothers and sisters, how many of us have heard that lie before? (laughs) All of us, right? We heard that lie over and over and over again. It's the number one lie that he tells you. You cannot be free of this. It's not true. The Bible calls Satan (laughs) the liar of liars, the chief of liars. So I want to encourage you with this fact. Don't believe the lie that you're going to continue in this cycle. God breaks bondage. Jesus breaks chains. Jesus sets nations free. Jesus sets families free. Jesus sets individuals free. And we understand this here at this church because we do a lot of recovery stuff. It is a process. Now for some people, God will break off an addiction and it's boom, done. I know people. I know a guy who's sitting in this room right now who's a really good friend, alcoholic for years, prayed and God just said, done, hasn't touched a drop since. He's a walking miracle. I also know other brothers and sisters because I've walked with you in recovery in different ways and it's been a, a process. It's a daily process for you to make a decision. I am not going back. I will not return to slavery. I am not gonna chain myself to that addiction ever again. Jesus set me free and I'm living out my recovery right now. Sometimes one hour and sometimes one minute at a time. So what I would say as we get ready to wrap this up, because now we've gone over time. It says if they know in their heart they will continue to sin. So let's, let's remove the lie. That's not true. Does that mean they really don't believe? I talked about this last night. One of my favorite stories in scripture is of a dad who brings his demon possessed son to Jesus. And he has to battle through the crowd to actually get in front of Jesus. And and he explains, he goes, my son has been demon-possessed for all of these years. He throws himself in the fire. It's just so painful, painful. And Jesus asked this beautiful question. He goes, how long has he been like this? And the dad, in heartbreaking fashion, says, a long time. A long time. And then Jesus has this exchange. He talks to him about what's gonna happen and the father says this in front of Jesus, the only one who can help and heal his son, the only one who can deliver someone from bondage. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. To the person who wrote this question, you say you believe, we're going to pray that God helps your unbelief. And the first thing you need to unbelieve is the lie that Satan's telling you that you cannot be victorious. Yes, you can. Not in your strength, but in the strength of Jesus. So would you pray with me right now? Father God, I pray for this brother or sister who's asking this question. God, I thank you for the profession of faith. I love the fact that it says, um, I do believe I believe, so Lord, in this moment, we we come back to this dad standing in front of you who said, I believe, help my unbelief, and we pray for their unbelief. God, together as a family of faith, right now, in the power of the name of Jesus, through the blood shed on the cross, through his authority, and under the power of his name, we pray against this lie that the meth addiction can never, ever be defeated. 
And we come together as a church family. We link our arms together. And we encircle our brother or our sister. And we say, that's not true. We serve a God who can deliver. We serve a God who can give great hope to you right now. We pray in the name of Jesus that this addiction would be broken off of our brother or our sister. God, give them the faith to keep believing. Let me speak to the family of faith right now. I need you to pray with me. Like, I need you to pray with me. Don't just listen to my words, but pray alongside of me for this brother or this sister. God, we link our arms as a family of faith and we speak to them truth. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We are with you. We are for you. This is a family of faith. We link arms around you. You are not alone. You are not a victim of this. You can choose to be triumphant, God. And we pray in the name of Jesus right now that you would bring about an incredible, great victory. God, bring one of those transformative stories that that we have an opportunity to share about you because of the great things that you have done. God, help us to walk through the process together. Help us not to pretend that this is just easy. God, instead, we come to you right now on behalf of our brother or our sister. We say, Jesus, hear our prayer. Break the bondage. Deliver and set free. God, help the unbelief And may it be grounded in a belief that our God saves, our God heals, our God delivers, and our God has a purpose and plan for our brother or our sister. And it starts today. So we love you, Jesus. We thank you that you are our only answer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, good morning, everybody. Almost afternoon. No response at all. Let's try that again. Good morning, everybody. Hi. Great. Welcome to everybody online. We're glad that you're here. Why don't you grab a seat here in the room? If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. Um, I've been the lead teaching pastor here for a long time, and it's great to be able to be with you today. If you don't know what we're doing, every once in a while we do something different. We kind of throw caution to the wind, and we just take a different approach to church. We have a conviction here, um, and they're already gone, but you can hear them backstage because I forgot. Can we thank Mike and the team from driving? We're driving all the way up from Portland. So good to be able to have good friends back on the stage again. So uh, we throw caution to the wind, and basically what we do is this. We believe that, that Christianity is actually supposed to be a dialogue, not just a monologue. So it's not just about me talking to you for 30 minutes a week and then thinking that everybody's going to you know, call it good, and we all go home and, and, and change our lives radically for the good, even though that's the hope every single time. That's why we pray and talk about Jesus. But to actually have an opportunity where we, where, where we can actually share in a dialogue, where you get to text in live questions, I do my best to field them. Uh, the question always comes up every time we do one of these. So do you really not know the questions? Yes, I have no idea what's going to be on that screen in the next couple of minutes. So then how do you prep? Um, you read your whole Bible and you pray. That's what you do as best you can. Um, And you trust the Holy Spirit to speak in and through. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So uh, let me throw the number up on the screen. The number is 360-399-6360. It's going to appear. There it is. And I get this wrong every time. There it is right there because everything's backwards. Okay, so that's the number you're going to text a question to. You can do it live right in this second. Um, and, And there's not a question that we will duck or weave. I did get asked a question last night. You said, you call it, ask me anything. Can we really ask you anything? 
And the answer is yes, you can ask us anything, but we do know this. There are all, there's always times when people will ask such a specific question to their particular issue that it's not responsible to answer it in a larger group. And what we do then is we try to respond to that person pastorally and say, hey, we think your question actually matters. So we'd like for you to contact us. Let's have a dialogue in that way. Um, as we get ready to start this, I, I'm gonna put some parameters around it so you, that you understand. First of all, if we don't get to your question, it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It just means you're going to have to find another place to get it answered because we can't get through all of them. We get this stack of questions that comes in. So we want to encourage you to be a part of biblical community, whether it's a rooted group or a small group, find a place to get your question answered because if God put the question in your heart, it deserves to be answered and we'd love to be able to be a part of that as much as we can. I also put this parameter around it as we start, which is this. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a politician, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm a pastor, so I'm gonna answer all of these as much as I can in like two to three minutes a piece uh, with a pastoral type of answer. I wanna shepherd people well. The motto that I walk into these weekends with is do no harm, because I am keenly aware of the fact the Bible describes your tongue as a restless, as a restless evil filled with poison. That's scary when you think about it. So we're going to try and do no harm today, but we're also going to try and be honest and forthright and, and, and speak truthfully into a dialogue with each and every one. So to everybody who's watching online, you can text in. We would love for you to do that to anyone that's in the room. Love to text something in. That would be fantastic. Um, and if there's no questions, we all get to go home early. Amen. All right. Don't think that's going to be the case. All right, so let's take a moment and pray and then we'll dive into the first question. Lord Jesus, would you come right now? Holy Spirit, come and resonate inside of our hearts. Lord, people that have a question that think, uh, I could never ask this. I pray that you would move them with courage right now to ask the question. And God, um, as my old pastor used to always pray, God, hide your servant behind the cross and may his words be yours today pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right, here we go. Let's fly without a net and see what's coming. Why does the Old Testament God seem different than the New Testament God? You know, that's a great question. So let's come back to the, to the initial part of it, which is the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means that his character is unchanging, that he is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. It was that, that means all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, that he was all of that before, and he still is today. But there are differences. There are differences. Now, it doesn't mean his character is different. It just means he presents himself differently and he has a different understanding or he has a different way of presenting himself to people that is different in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's important for us to, to lock into the fact, same God all the way through, triune, one and three, three and one. Good luck trying to figure that out because it's a mystery. The Bible says that's actually a, mixture, a mystery of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But... In the Old Testament, God is dealing with a specific group of people leading towards Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus. And then Jesus comes in the New Testament, and there does appear to be, there does appear to be, and I'll use that very loosely, there does appear to be differences. People often mischaracterize God in the Old Testament as only angry. He's angry all the time, and he rails against sin, and it's all about justice. I would challenge you, if that's your understanding, to go back and actually read the Old Testament because God is all of those things. He is just and anger, angry towards sin and he deals with people because he's trying to orient them towards an understanding of how beautiful he is. 
and how broken we can become. And so he is all of those things. But there's also a gracious response. I mean, if you just read the history of Israel and how many times they messed it up and did exactly the opposite of what God told them to do and God's response was, but if you come back to me, I will. But if you come back to me, I will. So all of those themes are there in the Old Testament, but they also carry over into the New Testament. There are moments in the New Testament, and some people are like, I oh, mean, I just love the Jesus part of this because he's so gracious and he's so kind. I'll tell you what, there were moments when Jesus was just and angry, righteous anger, and he directed those things in, a, in the direction that they needed to go in order to bring about the holiness and righteousness inside of all of them. So it may appear that they're different, but if you look consistently across the entire narrative of Scripture, you're going to find that they are one God in the same who does both grace and truth at exactly the same time in the perfect way that it's supposed to be done. And we have an opportunity to align ourselves with that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today. And that's our hope and prayer every day is that we always follow Jesus and all of those things. Okay? So may appear they seem different, but actually they're very much the same. And I would love for you to walk through that because you're going to learn a ton about how they actually go together like this. God is not inconsistent. Okay? All right. Let's go to the next one. There are times in the Bible when Jesus got angry. Oh, here we go. Like when he drove the merchants and money changers out of the temple courts. If Jesus was sinless, why is it sin when we get angry, but not when Jesus got angry? That's a great question. I love that question. All right? That's cool. So, um, and I love, how, I love how God prepares us in this, because I've actually been doing some devotional reading. I was reading in the book of Mark the other day, um, and it's about this story. And I've actually had the privilege of being in Jerusalem and walking up those steps to where the temple was. I mean, it's an incredible experience. Uh, side note on top of that, we're actually taking a group, God willing, <laughs> to Israel in October. And we have spots. If you'd like to go to Israel with Laurel and I this October, I'm going to get you to contact. Just call into the church. If you'd like to talk to somebody about Israel, they'll connect you to Mariah, my assistant, and she'll give you all of the information. And we're working on safety protocols and all that stuff. It's going to be amazing. Israel is just one of my favorite places in the world. Um, but I've walked up those steps. What's fascinating is in Mark chapter 11, some people don't know this. I never knew this until I read through, but does anybody, so before Jesus showed up and flipped the tables and chased out the money changers, Mark chapter 11 actually says that he showed up the night before and scoped out everything that was going on, but it was late and then decided to come back the next day. So nobody can tell me that it wasn't premeditated at some level. So then it comes down to a question, which is simple. Jesus was sinless, which means the anger that he exhibited in that moment was righteous anger directed towards sin, not just randomly towards people. God is the only one that I know of. Jesus is the only one that I know of that can actually handle anger in a truly righteous way because we end up dribbling, right? It started, we were angry at a particular issue, but then pretty soon it's like, I'm also angry at this person because they attached themselves to that and that person because they're an idiot and they don't understand anything. And now I'm mad at this person and this person and this person, and we crossed the line of sin. What we know is this. Jesus, when he went into the temple, was purging his father's house. He said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. So he directed righteous anger towards money changers, but it was the sin at the core of who they were. They were using the temple court for something that was not supposed to be used for, and Jesus was able to handle his anger 
in a sinless way and keep it directed in the right, in, in the right direction. Here's what I would say to all of us. We, I don't believe we're that good. I think we blur the lines all the time. So we have to trust the fact that Jesus, in his anger, did not sin in that moment. It's okay for us to get angry, but we have to realize how limited we are as human beings and that it's really easy for us to trickle outside. That's why we need to trust God and pray and say, God, give me wisdom. Um, Because anytime we lash out at a person and we wound their soul, we've sinned. And I think there is a place for righteous anger. But the question is then, what do we do with that righteous anger? When it starts being directed towards people and we're wounding people's souls, I think we've crossed across the line. So Jesus did it. He did it perfectly. We need to understand that we're not Jesus. That doesn't mean we can't get angry. It just means we have to be extra cautious with where that anger is directed. All right? Cool. Four people said, I agree with you. All right, that's good. Awesome. Let's go to the next question. See what we got. Do you have any advice for married couples that have opposing political views? (laughs) Jesus helps them. Um, How do you stay rooted in Jesus when you and your spouse have opposing convictions and political views? Wow. (laughs) Um, Anybody else want to offer an opinion? (laughs) I'll get a microphone for you. We'll go for that. So I actually spend time with people who are a married couple And this is what I know, is the unity of one flesh is more important than your political opinion. Okay, I mean, God brought you together. That means you are one flesh, which means you need to hold your opinion. You need to hold your opinion with a godly attitude, which means if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're both believers, that what should be coming out of you is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, which means just because you're thinking something doesn't mean you got to say it all the time. Somebody say amen. All right, okay, we're, we're all learning that as we're going. But I think it's okay for a couple to have opposing political views. The question just becomes, how do you handle them? How do you hold your conviction? Because scripture does not revoke itself just because politics get introduced. The Bible says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I think it's important for us to understand that when it comes to submitting a political view, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. I'd like to submit something to you for your consideration. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get frustrated. I'm not going to think that you are less intelligent because you have a different view. No, instead, as husband and wife, we're going to come together. We're going to share our differing opinions, and then we're going to seek God together. And I think that's where so many couples get it wrong. They submit their opinion, but then never, ever walk it through or pray it through or love it through. And Jesus said that when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, what that means is we're not going to have uniformity in everything, but we're supposed to have unity. I love this question because I think it goes bigger than that. This is the bride of Christ. And we can have unity without uniformity all the way across the line, which means you're entitled to an opinion and I get to have an opinion too. But how we wield and handle those opinions is a direct reflection of how we love Jesus follow Jesus, submit to Jesus, and for the love of God are supposed to try and act like Jesus in every opportunity. So staying rooted in Jesus means exactly that. You pray, you have deep conversations with deep questions according to how God would have you just line up with, with, with his particular area. I think one of the things that, that we miss in this whole thing is saying, I've got a political conviction. Here's my question. Did you get it from the world or did you get it from the word? 
Because I know a lot of believers right now who have a lot of political opinions, and I'll tell you where you got it from. You got it from YouTube, let's be honest. My question is this, when was the last time you consulted God's opinion about these issues? Where have you sought his heart? And are you actually, are are you rooted in your own opinion? Because I'll tell you what, my roots can go really deep into my own opinion. Is Is that where my roots are? Or are my roots in what the word of God says, whether or not I struggle with it or don't struggle with it? So to the husband and the wife, I would say this. Submitting to each other is incredibly important. Being gracious to other is incredibly important. Being actually rooted in Christ's opinion is really, really important. And actually being able to have an honorable dialogue with each other so that you have unity while understanding you may not have uniformity, I think those things are important. Because once again, going full circle, you are one flesh. That's how God created you now that you are married to each other. So you need to honor each other in the conversation. Okay? All right. Let's roll to the next one. I've been in some religious debates with a few of my Muslim friends. They've questioned why we have so many versions of the Bible, and I have no idea why. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. So, um, I love the, the New International Version 1984. That's my preferred study Bible. That's what I love. But I also have a copy of the English Standard Version. I have a copy of the New American Standard Version. I have a copy of the New Living Translation. I have multiple. I actually have um, a shelf full of Bibles, not because I'm a Bible hoarder, but because each one of them has an interesting, an interesting way of expressing the eternal Word of God. The key, the key is this. This is the eternal Word of God. Why there are different translations is based on the age of manuscripts. Okay, and we could get into a whole thing about textual criticism, interpretation, um, homiletics, hermeneutics. I mean, we could get into all different kinds of things. I'm going to keep this as short as I possibly can. Each one of the translations is done through a different type of a mindset. So the New American Standard Version was translated word for word. That's why when you read it, it can be a little clunky. The English is a little like, ah, why did they say that? Uh, the New International Version was translated phrase by phrase. And so they would look at a phrase, like we talk in sentences, they would look at an entire phrase and make sure that it lined up with the Greek, the Hebrew, or the Aramaic. Bottom line is, they are not different translations. They're simply going back to a different set of manuscripts and attaching themselves. The key to this in your Bible is this. What are the oldest manuscripts that were available and the most reliable manuscripts that were available? And so I encourage people, if they're looking for one of these, a good one that's attached to really, really good um, translation principles, because here's what we believe. We believe, and it actually says this in our doctrinal statement, we believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God as translated in the ancient languages or in the ancient writings, okay? To be truthful, um, English struggles to keep up with Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It just does. So that's why... It's my job to study like crazy every week so that I'm representing the word as honestly and openly as I possibly can. So the truth is there aren't many versions of the Bible. There's different translations of the Bible and it's reliant on us to make sure we do the right research and make sure we do the right work. And I would encourage you to be thinking along the line. So here would be my recommended list. I get this question all the time. I love the NIV 1984. I'm not crazy about the new translation. I love my NLT, my New Living Translation, because it was actually translated to be read out loud. 
And I think the and I think the English part of it is just really really good. It just helps my brain get working. My New American Standard for biblical accuracy is fantastic, and my English Standard version, my ESV at the same time, incredibly well done. The scholarship is just fantastic in it. If you grab one of those four, you're not going to go wrong when it comes to referring back to the original languages. So also on top of that, I love the fact that you're talking with your Muslim friends. I love the fact that you do that and I wanna encourage you to continue to do that. I think it's incredibly important to have honest, open dialogue. Um, I'm not sure debating is gonna be all that helpful because what I do know is this, the Jesus that they see inside of you is so unbelievably powerful in building that relationship over the long haul. So I'd encourage you to just kind of be thinking about that as well. I got a friend who's, who's like, I mean, he's a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. What keeps us in conversation with each other is the, it's the simple fact that, that, that we love each other and we have a friendship. And we can talk, skirmish, debate, whatever you want to call it, but being able to just bring Jesus into that conversation is really, really important. Okay, all right, let's head to the next one. How do I reconcile the reality of hell? If God is love and mercy and forgiveness and goodness, then why, when someone dies and isn't a believer, and they theoretically need all those things the most, would God not give that, but send them to hell instead? So I think it's important for us to understand this. God does not, in my opinion, God does not assign people to hell. We actually choose it. We choose it because God has offered us salvation. And for us to say, not interested, don't want it, thank you very much, it's amazing how that takes the onus off of us and immediately shifts it back to God. While God is standing there going, but I created a way for you. I created hope for you. Is hell an easy concept? No, it's not. It's not an easy concept. I believe that I could back up from scripture multiple times. In fact, let me say the verse that's just screaming in my head right now. Jesus said, it is not my will that any should perish. God's saying, I don't want that for any of you, so don't choose it. Don't choose to be separated from me when I'm inviting you into a relationship. I mean, that's why Jesus came to express his love. And if you look at the question, it says, God is love, God is mercy, God is forgiveness, and God is goodness. How do we know those things? Because Jesus came so that we didn't have to choose the reality of hell. Instead, we could choose the reality of heaven, eternity, walking alongside of God. So do we theoretically need all of those things from God in order to, to receive that salvation? Yes. And isn't it gracious of God to offer that to us? Isn't it beautiful that God doesn't give us the very thing we deserve, which is actually judgment? Now, I know that's offensive because we all like to think we're really, really good people. Unfortunately, the Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one of us. So that means we need a relationship with God in order to be restored to God the Father. And so my encouragement every time I get asked this question of hell is this. Hell is a reality. It's real. God gave you an opportunity to choose a glorious alternative and to walk with him every step of the way until you stumble across the finish line of heaven and you hear these beautiful words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. So the greatest way to not have to reconcile the reality of hell is to actually choose heaven through a relationship with Jesus. Okay? All right. 
Let's keep going. How do I know I'm doing well in God's eyes? Is there a way to know if he's pleased with me or not? I don't think I've ever been asked this one before. That's kind of cool. How do I know if I'm doing well in God's eyes? I think there is something beautiful about um, understanding that you don't need to strive in order to get God's approval. I mean, when you think about this through the eyes of, of a parent, God the Father, I mean, a father has this, has this um, and a mother too, like we have this, this leaning towards our children, which is, which is, I love you, I care about you. Now, I know some of you may not have had that type of experience with your earthly parents. The cool thing is you have a heavenly father who actually models that perfectly. And so I believe there, that there is um, an understanding of what it means to be approved by God. But I want you to know that's, that that's the natural inclination he has towards you. He loves you. He accepts you. He knows you better than anyone. He's for you. I think we miss that often. You know, he's in this journey along with you. And so I think one of the ways that you can know you're doing well in God's eyes is by simply opening yourself to the approval that God the Father already gives you. Then the second part of the question, is there a way to know if he's pleased with me or not? I think there is. Um, the Bible says that we're supposed to welcome the conviction of God. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, so when God is convicting me, it means that he's bringing something to my attention, an area of my life where I'm falling short. And God wants me to come closer to his heart. He doesn't want me to turn away from him. He wants me to turn towards him. And so I think one of the ways that we understand if God is, is pleased with us is when we have an understanding of God's approval. We know how he positions himself towards us and then we constantly come to God I mean David said um, create in me a clean heart like God show me show me I think we need to invite God into those moments search me oh God and know my heart try me know my anxious thoughts see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting I think one of the ways that we know whether God's pleased or not is we actually ask the question God, are you pleased? Are there any areas of my life that you need to expose? Are there any areas of conviction or correction that you want to bring to my attention? What I would love for us to get away from is this understanding somehow, it's a misnomer completely in our heads, that God sits in heaven and he's either sad or mad 100% of the time. Like I'm just ticked at you because you don't ever seem to get it right. That's not the position of God towards us. God is like, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you, I want the best for you. I will bring conviction into your life because I want you to actually see that your life will be better if you embrace this conviction. So we start from the place of God loves me and he approves of me. And then I ask the question, God, is there correction anywhere that I need? And then I understand that as I continue to move into maturity, more and more and more, um, that God's approval is even more obvious there in those moments, and I want to continue to welcome more correction every single time, okay? I think we covered that one. That's an interesting question. I'd love to pray about that for a week and then maybe come back and take another round at it, but that's a great one. Okay, all right, let's go to the next one. I'm a relatively new Christian. I've been reading through the Bible, and I believe that through faith I am saved in Jesus. Fantastic. But also through faith... I can be transformed by God. Awesome, okay. Is that what the fruit of the Spirit is about? That they will grow in me through faith in God. 
Okay, let me read that again. I think I might have missed something. I'm a relatively new Christian. I've been reading through the Bible. I believe that through faith I'm saved in Jesus, but also that faith, I can be transformed by God. Okay, that's great. Is that what the fruit of the Spirit is about? That they will grow in me through faith in God. So I would say this. Um, when we come to faith in Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we begin to operate and walk in the things of the Spirit. And then scripture says, by their fruit, you will know them. So then the fruit that comes out of us, because of that act of faith in believing in God, it begins to show up. And it just begins to show up in the most unique and incredible ways. So people who were once angry, accepted Christ, were filled with the Spirit, suddenly have a place to put that anger, and God begins to work in them and through them, and they actually become not just an angry person who's ticked off about everything, but they become an ambassador of reconciliation. That's what the Bible calls us. So out of that spirit, out of that, out of that growth, because of the faith we placed in Jesus, and because of our ongoing faith of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, these are the things that begin to show up. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things begin to show up. And that's also how we know we're growing because the old reactions that we used to have, we don't have anymore. Isn't that crazy? Like it's just like you used to default to, but I'm just like, I'm just, I'm angry about everything all the time. And the more you begin to immerse yourself in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus, suddenly you're just like, I used to waste a lot of time being angry at everybody. And now... I have anger towards certain sins, most of them in my own life, <laughs> but I'm not angry about that person or their response. In fact, graciousness shows up in the craziest of places, and suddenly I realize that kindness, it just kind of comes out, and I wasn't that way before, and we uh, suddenly begin to develop this, this, this reflex that goes, just because I typed the email does not mean I need to hit send, because the Holy Spirit of God just said, hey, Stop. Did you ask me whether you should send that? And suddenly you're like, I don't even have to send this. Now there's a time when it needs to be sent. After we've had a conversation with the Holy Spirit, God, do you want me to actually do this? And then we actually, when we don't hit send, sometimes it's like, I just exhibited self-control. I never used to be able to do that before. I was just like, this is why you're wrong. Send. And now it's just like, oh, that was actually for me. I needed to get it out of me. Now I can see it for what it is. That actually wouldn't honor God or create any type of reconciliation with this person. So I choose self-control. That's the Holy Spirit of God working in you, my friend. And so uh, last part of the question, is that what the fruit of the Spirit is about? Yes, that they will grow in me through faith in God. Yes, and may you continue to grow and expand and may those things become May those things grow into a full-blown part of your reputation in your community. I think that's fantastic. I love that verse. By their fruit, you shall know them. That means what is hanging off of your branches is a testimony either towards honoring God or not honoring God. Let's choose to honor God with our responses. Okay? All right. Next one. How do you reconcile the historical patriarchal view, oh gee, here we go, um, of scripture with women leadership in the church? Yes, absolutely. So there is a historical patriarchal view, Old Testament, and I also believe that there are um, incredible 
provisions within the New Testament scriptures. <clears throat> um, and I think there's some in the Old Testament too that would lead us to a view where um, we can appreciate love and have women leading inside of the church, which I think is fantastic. So uh, Old Testament, Deborah was a judge, highest form of leadership in the nation of Israel. And she operated in the gifting of what God gave her and led the nation. Incredible, that's fantastic. New Testament, we could look to Phoebe, a number of different examples. Um, and I think you have to make a decision as to how you're going to reconcile this. The Bible says in the New Testament, there's neither male nor female, bond nor free. I mean, it lists those things out in there. And so we have to make a decision. Uh, so just so you know, so we're clear, we have women pastors who have full authority in this church to use the leadership gifts that God has placed inside of them. And I'm honored to serve alongside of my sisters. They bring out something in me that, that, that is important because I love that. I believe that God has placed leadership giftings. I see it every day, leadership giftings in my wife, my daughter, and my daughter-in-law. I see them as they exhibit leadership and I think God planned it that way and I think it's fantastic. Here was an incredible moment for me. The Bible talks about Philip's four daughters. And I actually grew up in a highly conservative background where women in leadership was not embraced. And then I ran into this biblical passage that just made me go, oh wow, look at that. Philip the evangelist had four daughters. Most of your Bibles will translate it said that he had four daughters that prophesied. That was when there was no Bible yet. Prophecy was the highest form of revelation and teaching in the New Testament church. And Philip the evangelist has four girls who are bringing the word of God down to the New Testament church. At some point, you've got to make your own decision about where you land on egalitarianism versus complementarianism. I can tell you where we've landed. I love my fellow, um, my fellow sister pastors. I love what they bring to the table. I love the female leadership that is exhibited on a daily basis inside of my own home. And that's where we have decided um, to, to align ourselves. And, and we can have all kinds of theological <clears throat> conversations about this. I would just say this. I think, um, I think God loves his daughters. He puts authority inside of them. And, um, and I think they need to lead where God has called them to lead. Period. That's where I'm sticking. All right, let's go to the next question. Before doing this, do you have anything where you think, boy, I hope nobody asks about this? <laughs> um, not really. Uh, but I will say this. I mean, I know that there are times when, because I see after the weekend, um, what's amazing is a lot of the questions that come in actually become future sermon series. Um, but one of the things that, that, I, that when it comes to I hope nobody asks about this, my hope is that we would never ever turn this into a Bible trivia contest because I don't think that helps anybody. You know, or where we play these games that, you know, if God can make anything, can he make a rock big enough that he can't lift? Like, really? <laughs> I mean, we could waste some humanity with that, but I'm just like, God's counting every breath. I think we have bigger things to talk about. I mean, have you looked outside at the condition of the world? Do you really want to talk about God making a rock he can't lift? Like, really? When there's people dying and going to hell? I think we've got more important things to talk about. So no, I, I don't sit back and go, I hope nobody asks me about this because if I don't have an answer, here's what I would say. I will respond, I have no idea how to answer your question. Give me a week and I'll go and try and figure out an answer for you. 
I also think there are, there, are, there are questions that get asked where you say, you know what, I don't know. That's a mystery to me too. The mystery of the fact that God would offer grace to his people is something I still can't wrap my head and heart around. It just amazes me every time I think about it. So the answer is no. Nope. Let's ask it. I think it's good. I think we got time for like one more. Let's throw one more out there. How do you keep from losing hope in God through years of hard trials? I love that one. That's tough. Um, Where else can I turn? I could turn towards secular humanism and put myself in the middle of the universe. That actually, um, that has no explanation for pain whatsoever. Zip. It, it's, it's hopeless. Um, we could turn towards um, biomedical psychology. There's not enough answers there either. I'll tell you what, God is the only thing that keeps me hopeful. He's the only one that's ever provided the kind of answers that bring hope into hopeless situations. Have there been hard trials over the years? Yes. Many of them of my own creation. (laughs) Anybody else with me on that one? Created some tough things um, because of my own disobedience. And yet at the same time, God is the only one who brings hope. I love, I believe it's Hebrews, Hebrews 6, 19, that God is, is, that God is, God is hope and he's the anchor for our soul. I love that. In times of storms, when, when the winds are whipping and the cultural stuff is just stirred up and it's getting crazier and crazier and crazier, the truth of God is what anchors us to a rock that will not move. Great is his faithfulness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So God is actually what keeps me from losing hope. He's the one that comes alongside and says, trust me, follow me, I will be faithful, I do not break my promises, and I'm working a plan right now that you may not fully understand. But I promise that I work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's good Bible, right? So we hold on to that hope in God. I don't know how people live in this world right now without Jesus. I don't know how they do it. It's so hopeless. It's so broken. It's so fractured. Here's the good news. The church that's sitting in front of me and watching on the camera right now, we are not plan B. We are plan A. And God has called us to be ambassadors of hope. And my hope and prayer is that you will carry that mantle, that calling, and that authority this week to a world that desperately needs it. Okay, would you pray with me? Let's wrap up. God, thank you for questions and for a family that loves to ask. God, I thank you that, um, that we can come to you, Lord, when, when, when my answers are so shallow and, and lack the needed understanding and context, I thank you that we have access to a God who loves to answer the questions of his children. God, thank you for the promise of Deuteronomy 4, verse 4, which is we can fill the skies from heaven to heaven with our asks, with our questions. And God, I thank you that you are a God that answers. So Lord, help us to ask good questions. May we come to you and contend for all of the things that we need answers for, God. And I thank you that you are not a God that withholds. 
God, give us patient endurance as we continue to walk forward in the world. And Lord, may you be honored this week by how we bring hope into the situations and the environments where you have called us. God, bless my brothers and sisters in the room and at home today. May they be encouraged and empowered by carrying the message of Jesus with them this week. And may it truly be a message of hope filled with the Spirit, dipped in grace and truth. May we represent you well in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said... Amen. God bless you. Sleep in service. We'll see you next week.